Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Here, freelance writer, player of games, runner, gorgeous quarter videos, and at tabletop role playing aficionado. Welcome to the Monday edition of my bi weekly behind the scenes DM only live stream, Crafting Icewind Dale, in which I build, write, and prepare for our next session of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. If you are playing characters of all Robin, Frey, Celeste, Edmund, or Thimbleweed, this stream is not meant for you. But for the rest of you, welcome, assuming, of course, you're okay with the spoilers. Stream our DD sessions live on YouTube every Friday. Watch all of our sessions and review videos here on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Rogue Watson and join our official Discord server with invite link in the description below. If you would like to support the channel, please check out patreon.com slash rogue watson. For campaign, we use Roll20 and for streaming, I use open broadcaster software with Streamlabs. We are officially, 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 officially in the end game now. I think I've mentioned before when we got to uh, Etherin that we were in the end game. But now we're for real, for real, because we have reached the central spire after 11 sessions, I think, in Ethrin, which was pretty big, but uh, I really enjoyed that area. We are officially in the spire of Eriolarthus. I don't think this is going to be nearly as long, and it kind of constitutes a little bit of a mini dungeon crawl and one that I will be modifying a bit. But, you know, unlike... This is where it really deviates from Tomb of Annihilation because Tomb, you know, we went for our big open city into our mega, mega dungeon crawl that lasted months and was an amazing take on the Tomb of Horrors, expanded into multiple levels. This is not that at all. This is just a couple rooms, and frankly, most of it is pure exploration-based. There's not, like, a lot of uh, puzzles or traps or combat, and that's kind of something that I'll be... I guess increasing a bit just because my players are a uh, higher level and could probably stand to be uh, challenged a little bit. DM is a little bit salty after how much I got my ass kicked on last week's session. So maybe I can throw a few things at them just so they can um, bleed through something other than their freaking temporary hit points before they reach uh, Ariel Arthas. So we'll be discussing uh, the Spire and trying to balance it for this level of party for probably the next ideally we could do the spire in two maybe three weeks Eriolarthus um is a big enough boss fight where i'm hoping that would be its whole session and then i expect we could just immediately roll into the actual final battle which would be the the final showdown with the mythalar which would include uh you know everybody showing up including even francine uh the mammoth queen i guess i don't know probably not <laughs> it'll be a fun epilogue thing so, we actually already got into this room and activated it uh, last week, which I did not show them this map. So those of you who have watched last week's session, you saw me looking at this map, but my players did not look at this map. 
because I didn't want to just draw all of the ballroom stuff onto this map knowing that it was all an illusion and that they would probably see through it pretty quickly and thus the illusion would basically drop and then we would just have a combat encounter with all that art stuff on there. So I kind of want to just cheat by not having to put up the effort, frankly, of, of having to decorate these. As much as I love the color and the textures that are used in these maps, they are, for the most part, very empty. And it's especially true here where there's, you know, the Caves of Hunger didn't really matter because there's nothing in the caves. But here there's supposed to be a lot of shit going on. But most of it is illusory in this whole, this ballroom room, this lounge up here, and then there's a bar up here. And that's all supposed to be purely illusory, created by these brains in jars. Now, you could argue that they technically haven't dispelled the illusion yet. Be under... Yeah, scene can be ended with a, with a scene can be ended with a successful dispel magic of a DC 19. But the way I was thinking is if they just upset the brains, which I thought that was uh, a note they made somewhere. The three wizards are driven mad by their end of existence. Dispelling the illusion drives them into a furious rage. Visitors who ruin the ball in any way are attacked. So I took it to mean like, okay, even if they don't dispel it, if they do things to specifically interrupt it, even non-magically, which is what Frey did, then to me that would be equivalent to dispelling it. So we kind of cheat a little bit. But that's also because I just wanted to get past the, you know, you wanted to see like, right, if the players wanted to have fun with that or if they just wanted to start saying like, no, this isn't real. We're going to immediately start being suspicious. And they chose the latter, which is fine. And I think it was, I had Frey roll like a really good perception check after she noticed that they were, um, you know, kind of illusory. Uh, and then she was able to, I, I think, get a super good check on that perception score, notice the brains, and we kind of went from there. Now, I also added a bunch of Majin here. Remember that. I mentioned that there were Majin that were not illusory. They were, in fact, real. They're Majin guards and then kind of uh, servants, and these just act as their entire working class. So I also increased the number of brains from three to four in hopes to make this an actual viable combat encounter for my players who did just spend a lot of top-tier resources in that final battle, at least. That's the very least that that combat did do is it forced, like, well, Robin to cast Force Cage, for example. So we've got a total of four brains in jars, three Hypnos Majin, and four Demos Majin, which are all just... Haven't really. I think we've fought Demos Majin before. Pretty much just auto attack minions with 16 AC. I don't think I've actually gotten a chance to use the Hypnos guys before in combat. Uh, they can cast Suggestion and they can do a Psychic Lash, which is a Psychic Damage attack. All these guys do have magic resistance, which is pretty good to know. Gosh, did I just roll really bad on their hit points? They're supposed to have an average of 51 hit points, and yet all three of them have 34. I find that hard to believe. I'm going to re-roll their hit points because I'm not sure what happened here. 68 plus 24. 1, 2, 3. Or maybe did I just artificially? Because now that I see its hit points, this one's down at 34 also. At some point, artificially... Uh, Ray, uh, lower their hit points? Not sure what happened. Or did I raise it in the character sheet? That's odd. Look it up on here. Let's see. And I could just raise it just to. 
Okay, yeah, it is supposed to normally have 34. Most of it give them more hit points. That's not necessarily something I want to do, though. Go back to... Probably why it's... Formula isn't working. I wonder why I did that. Open the sheet up. Yeah, that's not right at all. Hypnose Mages is 48 plus 16. Uh, I'm okay with making them squishier. That's fine. Them out too long. So average of 34, 48 plus 16. How much they're supposed to have. Okay, so now... Okay, now the macro works. That a couple times. Yeah, okay. I don't know what that is. So the Demos Mage have more like an average of 50 hit points. These guys have an average of around 34, I think. Brain's also about 50. Brain's also floating in the air, 20 feet off the ground. So take that, you melee bastards. Although, if there's one advantage Celeste Monk has, it's that she actually has perfectly good range attacks. But there are also plenty of terrestrial enemies for the players to fight. So this is just going to be a big old fight. Uh, hopefully we can challenge the players somewhat. I know the brains in a jar are a pain in the ass because they can stun. Recall that they actually did fight one of these before in the Tower of Necromancy. Uh, they have a... They, they essentially have the Illithid Mind Blast. In fact, I think it might be the exact same thing. That's on that is. Uh, psychic energy in a 60-foot cone. That's the same. Yeah, they have the exact same ability as a Mind Flayer, except I think it's slightly weaker. DC 14 intelligence, saving throw for 3d8 plus 4 psychic damage. So it's slightly not as bad as fighting a Mind Flayer. But otherwise, it's almost like having four Mind Flayers floating around. Now, they don't have nearly the offensive or the, the defensive capability either. If they can't do their Mind Blast... They have, they have charm person, hold person. Hold person would just be superior, I think, paralyzing somebody. Uh, compulsion, hold monster. Need that because they're all people. Except for Thimbleweed, I guess, is not a person. Sleep at third level. I can't imagine sleep would affect any of these players, even at third level. I just don't think sleep scales nearly as well with player hit points. 5d8, when you cast this building spell, second level or higher roll additional 2d8. So it'd be 5d8, 7d8, 9d8. You cast it at third level. So just for funsies, 9d8 is an average of about 40 hit points. That's not going to affect anybody anytime soon. Asha City's laughter is actually pretty useful, although I think you would. You would isn't hold person just better? Paralyzing, Tasha's. All prone become incapacitated. Image returns in each time it takes damage, I'm gonna make another wisdom saving throw. Yeah, I think the paralyzed from hold person, I would imagine, is better. I guess this one would affect not just people, it's a creature. It's compulsion. Sure, because I didn't really use the other brain I had very, <laughs> uh, very long. I just used mind blast. 
creatures of your choice that you can see within range and can hear you must make a wisdom saving throw. Okay, so this is one that I think I gave to my Wellspring monster. So the spell ends, you can use a bonus action on each of your turns. It is concentration. Designated direction is horizontal to you. Each affected creature must use as much of its movement as possible to move in that direction on its next turn. Take an action before it moves. Doesn't seem very useful unless there's hazardous terrain around for an enemy to use. It's not like you're using up their reaction or movement or anything, so they still have all their capabilities. Use a bonus action turns in direction. It's horizontally each effect creature must use as much of its movement as possible to move in that direction. Oh, on its next turn. Okay. Sorry, I misread that. That's just confusing that that it you it just doesn't trigger till their turn. So until the spell ends, use a bonus action on your turn. So you can cast the spell and then do it. Designate a creature. They fail the save. On their next turn, they have to use as much movement as possible to move in a direction horizontal to you. But it can take its action before it moves. So if it's right next to you, it can still attack you, and then they'd have to move away. Oh, and a target isn't compelled to move, and obviously de de uh, deadly hazard. I'm just not sure this is worth casting. Um, guess the advantage is it's an AOE. Yeah, good for monsters with big hits and opportunity attack. That's true, because it would use their movement. We don't have a whole lot of good opportunity attack uh, creatures here. Bunch of little minions, so... Even if they walk through a line of them. I'm thinking their, their best course of action, bar none, is Mind Blast, and I think I would just DM rule it that Mind Blast is not going to affect the Majin. Um, yeah, just... Because otherwise, this gets really tricky if they keep hitting each other with Mind Blasts, I think. A 60-foot cone is huge. I don't want to annihilate my own dudes. And it makes sense. For reasons I'm not care to explain. They're just immune to the mind blast. They're immune to the brains. Uh, the brains can target, I guess. Um, that's the best use of their ability, but it is on a recharge. Intelligence save, which is usually a dump stat. It does damage and can stun, and stun is obviously brutal as hell. Advantage. Actually, stun's not as bad as paralyzed, now that I think about it, because paralyzed is the auto crit. So that's something that would be the next best thing is to individually hold person somebody. Is that a con save? Wisdom save. That would be good use though. Paralyzing somebody would be very nice when you have a bunch of little minions, because that shit would add up pretty quick. Uh, not fun. It's not. Um, you know, one thing I do, if you'll notice, <laughs> you know, the problem with high-level D&D that I'm realizing, and I think I mentioned this in the Frostside chat, if I didn't, I'd talk to Chris about it afterwards, is that, maybe it was a crafting term I talked about this, I feel like I have to use crowd control abilities that I normally would not use very often in other tiers of play. But once we get to these higher tiers of play, uh, 
just has to be part of the repertoire, I feel like, in order to challenge the players. But unfortunately, yeah, it can be pretty shitty to lock multiple people down for multiple rounds. You would hope that the players would support each other and restore each other, but unfortunately, this isn't really the kind of party that has access to that kind of stuff. Because if somebody... Is, what they can do is they have access to abilities to help with saves. They can give Vardic Inspirations, and they can give uh, the Flash of Geniuses. Oh, so that's the kind of stuff I guess they can do. They don't really have, like restoration-type spells. Or they even have uh, common emotions, but I don't think that works. That's only for charm purposes. It'll work for hold person for paralyzed. But what you will see me do is the amount of brains that get to do Mind Blast is probably going to be equal to the amount that get affected by Mind Blast. In other words, if you see the first brain get off a really effective mind blast and stun like half the party maybe the other brains aren't really going to use mind blast that much you know maybe they'll be using uh hideous laughter or they have zone of truth um god unfortunately unfortunately all of these are lockdown spells aren't they old person tasha's hideous laughter like all of those are designed to lock people down versus any other kind of thing but you're finding it's brains like that's the whole that's the whole thing here they do have a basic auto attack of chill touch. I guess 3d8 necrotics. Something. But you will see me essentially not have all four of them start doing mind blasts. But maybe if you know, one of them does a mind blast and only locks down one of the players, you know, then you might see another one try to get another mind blast off. And I'll, I'll play around with it, in other words, in terms of their recharge and ability to get those off. But it's, it's a tricky situation because I don't want to deny them that ability because it's cool and stun is something the player should have to work around but i realized that once somebody is stunned as they basically rely on i think valraven's bardic inspiration which is very good and edmund's flash of genius ability to get them out of it so i don't think valin has anything that could help them and i've kind of treated Cadavex as a non-combatant just for balancing purposes yeah she just has offensive spells i totally just forgot to roll initiative for valin in the last battle and they didn't need her at all so yeah, I do like the Mind Whip um, effects, for sure. Uh, I'm not going to rebalance them at this point, but that was something I looked at um, for the Wellspring monster. was one of the, I think, the lair actions or something. No, it was the, it was, each creature had, had that as one of their uh, ranged attacks on, on a recharge, I think, was the Tosh's Mind Whip, which was kind of like a limited uh, slow ability. Yeah, it's done until damage or woken. Stop trying to help them, Demix. I feel no pity. They kicked my ass so thoroughly. They have no remorse for me. As of now, now my opinion will probably change come Friday, and then I'll be like, all right. <laughs> Only one of them gets a mind blast off or something, but we will see. I, I, I'm hoping I can just create a fun fight with the fact that these things can stun you. This laughter prone and chill touch is a range attack. That's true, and isn't it bad to do a range attack against prone? Right? I think uh, you have disadvantage, whereas if they're melee, you advantage. So you could try to combo that with the Majin as well. And the Hypnos Majin also do have Suggestion, but I don't think they would be using it in this battle, because that's kind of... I, w I would expect they almost use it like out of combat. I would expect them just to use their basic Psychic Lash ability, which targets Wisdom and deals Psychic Damage. Does the Brains have Magic Resistance also? Because all the Majin do. 
Do indeed. So every single monster here has magic resistance. Something I will probably forget about. But uh, would probably affect the balance of this fight as well. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I want to try to be careful about... As I mentioned, not having literally all four of them use Mind Blast at once, even though that would be perhaps tactically the most efficient thing. I mean, technically, if you have a powerful recharge ability, you should always be doing it, so that way it's always rolling for recharge. Like, I totally get that part of it. But I also get trying to balance a fight and make it fun without being crappy for folks. This mage, I don't know if he's involved in the fight or not. He's just maybe not quite... What to do with him. Maybe I'll just get rid of him. <laughs> the idea is the Majin kind of guard this right side. So what's open to the guests, you know, what's immediately open is this ballroom area, which is why 19B, uh, these office spaces in 19C, which I've sort of bare bones filled out with cabinets and desks. I was going to let the players, if they cared, to search through those rooms to, like, give me an investigation check, and then if they roll a certain amount then they can roll on that spell scroll table that I I have for the MVPC table, which has been very helpful to just have us uh, kind of a random loot table of different kinds so they could just roll for spell scrolls. Uh, I mean, the whole area is supposed to be fairly destroyed. There's just a few features in here kind of diluting themselves. And then 19E is where it gets a little tricky. This is supposed to be uh, where Veneranda is, which is an important NPC they can talk to. And she kind of gives them, this is the, it's a really cool designed NPC, as I mentioned, with the brain in the jar on top of the helmed whore, which is a cool combo. But I've already got Katavix that has this ritual brain transfer information already. And I don't really feel like introducing the whole, like, oh, take his staff of power. He's not going to have a staff of power. Like, he's just an elder brain. Like, he doesn't have a fucking staff. So I don't think for my campaign purposes I'm going to use her as an NPC. I will definitely use... Uh, I'm thinking I may use this combination, or maybe a pair of them or so, uh, as like minion troopers for the Elder Brain, which I know realizes, like, man, that's a possibility for a lot of stuns and things, which could be nasty, but that's what you're up against. So instead, I did still populate the room with some brain transfer stuff, and Katavix would recognize this room immediately for what it is. I believe he already teased the fact that Uriolarthus underwent the transfer, so the kind of what maybe the players are expecting another brain in a jar situation. Go back and review the tape on that, actually. I don't know exactly what details that uh, he told the players. I wonder if I have that in my notes. I don't think I did. I don't remember what I said. Um... In terms of, I'm thinking here, you know, did he know about this area? Uh, maybe he helped set this up, but he didn't work here. He preferred to work at the Tower of Necromancy. But I know that he, the necromancers were specifically involved in the ritual brain transfer, just like the Tower of Abjuration were involved in building the, you know, force field for this place. Like everybody had a hand in, in something to do with the Spire of Uriel Arthas. I like that angle of it. And uh, it was Katavix and his team were the ritual brain transfer folks. Uh, but but maybe there was even some misgivings or arguments there. You could even go into some backstory if you wanted to about how, like, Uriolarthos pushed it too far. And he was like, I don't think you know, enough of us are ready for this. It hasn't been tested or whatever. And then when they walk in, 
Uh, they'll find that it's a bunch of kind of just gooey flesh bits on the floor, and you can tell like things have gone wrong in here in the past. And I was going to represent that by another quick fight. Uh, but again, this may depend entirely on how long this other battle takes against some undead. Just some, you know, wrong spirits of uh, creatures that were not properly transformed into brains in a jar, which would be a pair of alips, which would hopefully not, you know, be a big fight, but enough to kind of freak the players out. The babbling uh, is kind of freaky. Whispers of compulsion. They just have fun abilities. But they're still relatively low AC and low hit points, so the players could absolutely demolish them without the chance to do anything. So I don't see that being a big fight. Just maybe a pair of ghosts to kind of shake them up a little bit in there. Um, I don't really see any loot being had in there necessarily. Maybe you can get like alchemist supplies. Else. Uh, Y19F has a bunch of staves, which none of them are magical, which is kind of disappointing. I, maybe I can stick a magic staff in there, but gosh, they between you and me, they don't really need any more magic items. <laughs> and I've kind of given them, I feel like I've had to give them something, you know, in every single area just about. Although I didn't give them in the wellspring, instead the of them got resistance to psychic damage, which is still in play, by the way. They still, Celeste and Thimbleweed both still have resistance to psychic damage, which is going to be huge against the Brains in a Jar battle and against uh, the Elder Brain. That'll big deal. That was basically the reward that they got, although you could have gotten the reward without actually fighting the monster. Uh, there's cool descriptions for all the stabs. They're just meant to be like optional arcane focuses, but otherwise you don't actually have any magic with them. I think that's most of the first floor. Y19D just has that one Hypnos Mage in which to talk to them, but I, because I never showed it on the map or anything, I, I could honestly just ignore it or you know, have it shush them away or something. I, I don't know. I may keep it in here just for funsies, but I don't see the players um, necessarily need to interact with this hallway down here. The upper half of this room has more stuff that was supposed to be just illusory that they can interact with. If they really wanted to come in here and just, you know, interact with a bunch of Illusions, they could have done that, but since we're not, probably not needed. 19G had a, a lounge, and then H is a uh, bar. Travelers mill about, talking about each other while servants carry bottles of wine and spirits around to refill their cups. And a rectangular counter, a bald, a pale skin humanoid serves wine from an ornate bottle. The illusion is dispelled. The area is shown to be a frozen ruin bereft of inhabitants. I'm not even sure how much I need to fill this out. I mean, it says rectangular counter. Uh, it almost mean like this area back here, I assume, would be the actual bar? I don't know. I need to actually make uh, tables here. It's the... uh, but otherwise, again, there's really nothing. Well, okay, there's... Behind the rectangular tower held in, held in storage racks or a dozen bottles of 2,000-year-old wine. Uh, an aura of abjuration magic around each bottle, which has preserved its contents. Each bottle of wine is worth 50 gold to an interested buyer. That's all for 2,000-year-old wine? That's been magically preserved? 50 gold? I, I, that, that's got to be lowballing. That's crazy. A dozen. Okay. Yeah, that seems, that seems like a lowball number to me. I don't know. I mean, I know wine is supposed to age, and that's a good thing for it. I don't know if there's a a limit on that, though, where it just literally turns to nothing. Vinegar. 
Not a wine guy, if you can tell. Two thousand year old wine. So that's it for this whole. Well, not never mind. There's a there's a top little invisible bridge we can talk about here. But otherwise, all of this equals two battles. One of them a big battle. One of them a small one. And then just a few little exploration opportunities to get some minor treasures. Y nineteen I is the force bridge, a seven foot tall wide, four foot wide window at the north end of the same major room, basically the ballroom. Uh, overlooks a thirty-five foot wide gap in the spire superstructure. It never tells me how far that goes down. Far side of the gap, a similar window opens in the chamber of sorcery. Between those windows, which is a magical invisible five foot wide plane of force that serves as a Although it's creeped across, it's suppressed by the activation of the spindle. Uh, so you could just leave it. You could either do the Indiana Jones thing and have it be an invisible bridge for funsies, or leave it as a giant gap and be like, all right, players, just prove to me that you can make it 35 feet across a gap, which I'm very confident they can pretty much all do without not even really casting a spell, I think. Well... I guess Ball Robin would have to Misty Step is get over there. Yeah, it may just be a gap. I could, I may just treat it like a gap, like it's been destroyed, like it's broken off. And like, hey, that's your hazard, just cross it. I have no idea how, what happens if you fall. <laughs> it doesn't say, it just... As a hundred foot draw, what's what's the max on falling damage? The very very small chance that somebody actually falls. Horse bridge. Or you just have it be the joke, and that the force bridge is actually still there. And just the first person who, like, steps out or jumps or doesn't make the jump just lands on this invisible bridge. And it could just be just a, a joke, like, oh, yeah, you guys could just walk across instead of having to spend, you know, ten minutes, like, sweating bullets over it. 200 feet. How? I guess, let's see if this is to scale. So if they make it all the way up to this elevator, they're at least, like, up here in the spire. Right? Like, they're somewhere around here. If they, I guess they could fall anywhere in this structure. Your feet would be... I mean, you could argue they fall 200 feet. I'm, I'm following the... If we look at where the elevator ends... And that they've ascended somewhat. Put them kind of right in the middle here. And we drag it down. I mean, 200 feet does not even get you to the Mythalar, to the base. I'd probably say 100. I think it's, it could easily be a 150 foot drop. On average. So that would be, what, 15d6? I'm going to call it a 150 foot drop. That seems 
That seems illogical. Back to the spire. Glad there's at least something in there that causes them to kind of hazard avoidance. Y19J. Weird. Here in surface of the chamber, 11 alcoves extend from the walls like the points of a star, each one narrowing to a niche. A gently glowing crystal is mounted five feet above the floor. The air seems to hum with pent-up power. This seems like a great opportunity to have all of these things shoot lasers at people in this chamber. Instead, they act like some kind of hologram, holographic projector that creates this figure called Everlast. Rilarthus created Everlast to aid him in his apprentice in their doomed mission to restore Ethan from ruin. Everlast is a living spell bound to the spire. What's like the Alexa system or something. <laughs> and I, I just don't need... Maybe... I, I, I'm impressed that they throw so many social opportunities at the players, even though I've got constantly all these social opportunities but maybe that's because of my campaign is given a lot of social opportunities so i feel like i don't have to use all these ones like veneranda and everlast and all these other ones because it's kind of overlap too much with my own it doesn't it doesn't feel like it has any more really interesting information to give either As our lesson to reach your lesson study, he says he can't help them. Saying my orders for information in the cities reveals the secret cities to outsiders. Doesn't even seem like he has any information that Veneranda doesn't have. I guess if you miss Veneranda, then it might be helpful to talk to this thing. By 2086, most likely Celeste takes very little. Frey lives. Uh Oh, yeah, Celeste's got the monk thing. So. Let's see what 15d6 looks like. Nice. 69. Alright, this is not much damage. Please. This is why it's insane to me that people try to bring logic to D&D &D because uh, yeah, any, any substantially leveled up player could easily survive literally a drop from 150 feet without any magic or anything and just take it all hit point wise and be you know, not perfectly fine but still be alive. Wow, that was a good roll. 60 damage. Just realized my first one I did was the 69 was really, really good. As it should be. Camera. So I'm thinking. I don't really need to use this weird Alexa thing. Or maybe I could. Maybe I could have all the points start, you know, building up. You could almost tease it. Like it's they're about to fire a laser at the party instead it it builds that pretty image of one interesting thing I could I could do is build an image of Irialarthus as as him as a Netherese wizard to tease the players like oh shit we just made it to him like this is it and maybe they have a, and maybe it's like just a recorded or it's the it's the spire itself talking or something so there could be a little bit of a social scene here but the players Either either it's a recording or it's the spire or it's Irialarthus 
projecting this image because as an elder brain he is aware of the players and what they're doing that might be the more interesting thing as a chance to be able to talk to the villain you're going to go up against with whom you haven't had any real context for and and talk to him first so maybe i'll i'll, I'll replace everlast with a projection of Larthus. i think that could be interesting Crystals project a hologram of Arthas as a, which could confuse Katavix, because maybe Katavix is like, I thought you went through the jewel of brain transfer or something, and maybe Arthas would be able to recognize Katavix. And if they, maybe they say the wrong things, maybe Katavix could, uh, not Katavix, uh, Irulathos could use those crystals to power up and shoot at the players or something. I could have some kind of a, that block set up for that. <laughs> Weirdly, it does say the crystals have their own stat block. Each crystal is a tiny object with an AC of eight, three hit points, immune to poison and psychic damage. There's a hatch mounted in the ceiling, 30 feet above the floor. Brought up from the floor only with a successful 20 perception check. Send 50 feet vertical shaft by 19k. How would you normally get up to the chamber then? Do they fly up there? Adavix, you would know this, unfortunately. Maybe Katavix can mention the fact, like, point up to the area or something. But I, I like that idea of having Iriol... Oh, I can't say that name. Iriolarthus talk to the players via a hologrammed projection and try to just figure out... You know, and, and he's paranoid as hell. He's the, he's the brain in a jar times a thousand. He's just, you know, expects them. He's like, oh, you finally come to... Uh, or, or or maybe he'll even think like that they're Netherese wizards because I think that was initially written in it is they're expecting help from other Netherese con enclaves or, or cities, but the whole empire kind of fell and uh, they did not get any help. So maybe your authors will appear, realizing that uh, been watching you for some time and you are not, you know, clearly not Netherese wizards, and and just kind of probe them for a while, asking questions and. Maybe even as as it leaves, you know, if, if the conversation turns sour, then he can overload all the crystals to fire at the players before disappearing. That would be kind of a cool send-off. All right, Y19K gets to the second part of this dungeon, which is the second level, I guess. Uh, I'm moving up the shaft from area Y19K, send over... Oval hall glittering with frost, 10 foot radius dome of translucent ice, and closes the area around the shaft from which you emerge. Burn to the hall, two black shaped patches of bench darkness hover in the air to either side of a double door. The living blades of disaster. A spherical wall of force, its outside coated with a thin layer of ice, covers the shaft leading down to area 19J. The barrier was created by a wall of force spell maintained by the glowing green crystal set above the doorway. 
long as the crystal is glowing, the wall of force can't be dispelled. Huh. This part. Two living blades of disaster guard the double door that block the way to area winding J. The, bla the blades attack intruders that move in range of their blind sight 30 feet. And the blades can pass right through the wall of force. Well, that's convenient. That comes up the shaft. Shaft. Damn right. The glowing crystal sustains the wall of force, but has become loose in its stone fixture. Whenever a loud noise is made from the chamber, the loose crystal flickers. Thunderously loud noises cause the crystal to go out for 1d6 rounds, during which time the wall of force is suppressed. The first time this happens, the ice that coats the dome collapses. The character within reach of the crystal can use an action to pry it from its fixture. Causes the crystal go dark for good, ending the wall of force. That is a really interesting hazard, actually. When you come up from this 50-foot shaft, there is a wall of force barrier. A spherical wall of force. Doesn't quite say how high it goes. Ten foot radius dome. I guess I guess ten feet high because it's ten foot everywhere. On the map, like it's kind of got to use it. Five, ten, fifteen. 10. Yeah, I guess it is ten. Weird thing where it starts in the middle of the square rather than the edge of the square. I don't like purposes. Okay, so that's interesting. So they, you pop out, you're in a dome of force, which means you have no maneuverability, and these blades just come in and start attacking you, which I could keep it that way as a final... This, is, this would be the only battle before the final boss, I believe. Seen these in action before. Pretty scary. Very scary, actually. They can pass through the wall of force, but you just can't really escape them. I don't know how you'd know use really loud noises to cause the crystal go out for 1d6 rounds. It's unfortunate this is painted on the walls. I can't get rid of it. Ice that coats the dome collapses. Say, what happens if the ice... So what does that mean? The ice collapses. Damage? Destroying the crystal is in effect. Alright, we need to look up wall of force. Can people teleport out of it? Because then the the main thing I would see that being that the players probably aren't going to figure out the time thing. Um, or sorry, the sound thing is if somebody teleports out of it and then destroys the crystal. Cannot be dispelled. Nothing can physically pass through the ball through, through the wall. Stupid force cage. It's immune to all damage and can't be dispelled by dispel magic. Disintegrate spell destroys the wall. The wall sucks into the ethereal plane. But inside you can't just teleport through it because that's Force Cage does say if you try to teleport through it, then you have to make a save. This one doesn't have any kind of stipulation like that. So you would be able to teleport through this wall with like a misty step or something. 
that would be key because that would be able to untrap anybody else. This is kind of a fascinatingly uh, hard trap, like a firm lockdown for the main quest path, right? Like it kind of worries me almost. Like what if players didn't really have a way of dealing sound damage or something? Like the DM, you just have to be like, all right, after shouting, you know, the crystal finally jerks loose or something, or maybe after the battle or something, the crystal finally falls down. Well, force has weird full cover rules, so dimension door works, but misty step isn't. Not seeing the cover rules on here, unless that was just, uh, are you talking about like a, a Jeremy Crawford ruling or something where somebody asked about that? does block ethereal travel, but it doesn't say it blocks teleport. I feel like it would specifically block teleportation travel. It's magical things can't pass through. And if they can physically pass through the wall, would you cast, cast spells through it, though? Like, could you, even like a magic missile or something, I mean, maybe you could argue that magic missile creates physical missiles, but... You know, could you cast like um, I don't know, charm person or something through the wall? Not physical. There's nothing physical happening there. Interesting. Definitely would fuck up all the melee people. Um, and stuff like thimbleweed with the bow. But you're. I mean, things can't also attack you. It just you know these things are gonna come in and attack you. So. It just kind of becomes a a maneuverability puzzle, I guess, where you can't really get away. So, so it may, that might be part of the challenge here: is the swords can get up on the squishier ones fairly easily. Do we keep these two swords here? I use living spells a lot. That was one of the more enjoyable common encounters I think we had. I could add more here. I could change these to different things. This is probably the one we saw the least out of out of the different, except for the living demiplane. I think we only saw one of these. I did get a chance to crit with it. Which... Master. Only got the one attack, but... Oh, this is actually a good point. The preemptive strike would go off really deadly if it gets in a bunch of people. You'd be able to get that off every single round as a reaction. Make a melee attack against a creature that starts its turn then five feet of living spell. So it would be able to just get free attacks on people near it. Okay, now I'm seeing that interesting combo. Rolled slightly higher for those hit points too. Thingy here. So surprisingly, I may just keep this one. Yeah, I may actually just uh, keep this as written. The wall of force and the double swords. That actually seems Kind of compelling and interesting as a com comboing a battle that we haven't quite seen before, which is against two of these swords coming at you. The players had just, and, and what's probably going to happen is one of them, you know, flies up into the shaft to look around. And I basically immediately roll for combat because I describe this room, I describe the wall of force, and then these two swords start hovering close to you. And then I roll for initiative. And then if that player decides to fly like all the way back down, and then maybe they talk about that, 
that part gets kind of awkward, I guess, because it's like, well, do these swords follow them down there? It does say they can go through the wall of force. But these are meant to be, like, guarding this door, so they probably wouldn't follow down. But I could see that happening first. Like, I don't think everybody's going to make it up. They're going to have somebody, like, fly up the shaft and then scope it out for a second. I could always describe the wall of force first, and then once somebody's up there for a second starts motioning people off, then you can have these swords materialize from the distance. And then we get to the testing chamber. There's a trap here, which is right past the door with the swords. Ten foot square, immediately south of the double doors. Triggers over a creature that is neither a construct nor undead. Enters the area for the first time. They trigger the flesh to stone spell. Oh, shit. Creature can't set off the trap more than once, and it's triggered three times. The trap vanishes. The DC of 17. Oh, boy. Do the players have even a way of reversing that? I know they get, what, two saves? Three saves. Con save, restrain, flesh begins to harden. Another con save at the end of each of its turns. If it successfully saves against the spell three times, the spell ends. If it fails, it saves three times. It is turned to stone and switched to the petrified condition for the duration. Well, the duration is only one minute. Maintain your concentration on the spell for the entire possible duration. The creature is turned to stone until the effect is removed. Okay, never mind. So that's, that is going to be permanently turned to stone. <laughs> Just petrify. Oh, uh, okay. The game doesn't fuck around here at the end. Jeez. That's a tricky one. I know they get three saves. The players are pretty good at saves, thanks to Bardic Inspiration. I feel like Katavik should know about all these things. I know, yeah, three saves is pretty generous. But DC 17 is also pretty high, so... How do I get away with Katavik? I guess Katavik, he'd be out of it or something, and not... Is this is is this normally the way he gets to his office <laughs> back in the day? Having to go through all this motion? Maybe Cadavix isn't affected because he's got security clearance, you know, registered with the spire or something. Love them is Oh, that's that's actually further past this. So here's just a trap, which is a bullshit trap. There's no warning about it or anything. You just step it and trigger it, which is kind of crappy. Maybe put a maybe put a warning on the door outside. Like, warning, no one except a member of the Ebon Star allowed inside. And then Katavix, maybe Katavix won't know. He'll just be like, I, we've never had anybody that wasn't a high-ranking member made it uh, this far through the Spire before. You know, the, the first, the, basically anything past that Force Bridge, you're basically not supposed to really uh, get into the back room, essentially. Character succeeds on a DC-10 Arcana check, running symbols in the doors, represents eight schools of magic. Opening any of the eight doors reveals utter darkness beyond. A creature that has dark vision can see into or through the magical darkness of a warlock with double sight can. Darkness fills the tunnel south of the doors and can't be dispelled. To pass through safely, character must speak the name of one of Arialarthus's eight apprentices and then step through the door associated with that wizard's school of magic. Each time a creature steps through a door without speaking the correct name, a barbed devil appears in the corridor beyond in the dark corridor. The devil can see in the magical darkness and attacks any creature that moves in the corridor without first speaking the correct name. Huh. We used a barbed devil. 
do have the de they do have Devil's Sight. I was thinking that was the reason uh, that they would use this creature. Darkness doesn't impede the Devil's Dark Vision. That's kind of interesting. Um, I feel like Katavix would know how this works, though. And clearly they already have Katavix with them, so that would be a huge plus. So I don't see them fucking this up. Unless just to experiment for funsies, I could see them doing that. That's creepy, though. I, I like that concept of having just doors and open a door and just like a void appears. And then that within that void, a devil just comes running out. So it'd be like parking spots for all the wizards, except in this case it's a door, and wrong door has a barbed devil appear. What they'd probably do is have Katavix just recite his name and go through his door, which would totally work. Except for the door, says that was. So what it would do would just turn into a normal door, but it's saying yeah, the others they would turn into some kind of magical darkness hallway, which is interesting. So I may not have the, I may not change these to the door symbols. I'll probably instead leave them like this. And then instead of being able to have the players be able to open them, I would have, I guess I could create locked door. Um, have like the darkness spew out some kind of darkness graphic and then have that barbed devil come rushing out at them and then they can roll furnish there. Otherwise, if you if you name one of the people and go through the right door, which they would just have the symbols, then you make it through the chamber of the Ebon Star. Vortex of glowing stars hangs in the air inside this chamber, so they were attending on its axis. Ebon Star, govern Etherin from the hall, eight magically darkened corridors connect this hall to area Y9. There. Ten foot wide passageway leads to a locked and double door beyond which lies a balcony. Mantine key in the area 19. Or a character uses thieves tools. One of the balcony. <laughs> you have a quick uh, egress, I guess. From above. Whirling star field represents the cosmos. As it was known to the nether, he's a character who studies the star field, sees a strange phenomenon. Gain a, a cursed flaw. Any character who has a supernatural charm game by drinking from the goblet, sit in the chair for the school of magic tied to that charm. So only a wizards can sit whatever chair matches their chosen arcane tradition. Yeah, Valen and Katavix are both necromancers. Starfield transforms into a glowing door that persists for one minute before transferring back to its original form. So again, Katavix can help them kind of solve this puzzle too. And this would basically teleport them to the boss room. Um, it's the only known way to reach the chamber of Ariel Arthas, I think. Argue that as. N is a stasis chamber. Does it have the spindle in it? Or is the spindle? Oh, yeah, it is. It's the spindle. Oh, I'm not using the spindle. <laughs> the helpful MacGuffin if you're doing it, that if you're including it, but not involved in my campaign. Also, energy crash of the stadium caused a floating chamber of the side to crash the ground. Wow. Uh, so I've got nothing I can do in there. Maybe I'll just treat it like a lounge or something. Be just empty. 
library, definitely a chance to get scrolls, including a scroll of the comet. Definitely a fun thing I can give the players. That one's at least less um, headachey than giving them the scroll of Tarask summoning. Yeah, there's clues where how to get into the chairs, but again, they'll have Katavix. I guess there's a chance Katavix wouldn't survive against the like the brain stuff down there, so that could be tricky. Balcony to make proclamations. The inhabitants of Etherin. Word spoken by creatures in the balcony are magically amplified to sound ten times louder than normal. Okay. Out there. And then we make it to the study. So yeah, so that'll teleport to the boss room, which I will have a separate boss room repaired. So if you break it down in terms of things that are going to take up time, I think the initial fight we've got lined up for um, Friday's session is probably going to be the, the single longest part, which is the biggest battle. Other than that, you've got a little bit of a undead battle here with the brain transfer room, a very minor hazard thing with the force bridge, social scene with uh, Irialarthus's hologram, an interesting little hazard combat encounter here with the Wall of Force, Blade of Disaster, a possible trap into a just petrifying the players, which I uh, will talk about that more on Thursday. I don't, it just feels so out of left field, but maybe I can give them a proper warning on the door. And then interesting little puzzle thing with the doors and the chairs and all that, but kind of easily solvable because they have an NPC who basically just knows this part of it at least and knows how to do it. Enter the boss room. So... I think would be hopefully well on track to just cover all of these two levels in uh, the next two sessions, I think. But for now, that is going to do it for this week's Crafting Icewind Dale. If you enjoy the content, please check out patreon.com slash roguewatson. Shouts to Platinum Patrons, Joe, Will, Thomas, Stan, Brennan, Genocider, David, Eclectic, Role, Play, Role, Christopher, Brian, William, David, Corey, Corey, Coa1337, Big Nut, John, John, Chris, Scott, Gene, Eric, Sox, Dan, Tyler, Nathan, Camp, Crystal Lake, Counselor, Big Shep, and Andrew. And gold patrons, RPG, Papergrams, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcus, Lizard, Lounge, Sam, Lumpy, Spuds, Jerome, Nathan, Fazaga, Tortoise, Scott, Refus, Carolyn, and William. Thank you all very much for your support. I will see you for more crafting action on Thursday.